Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast based on writers sitting around drinking tasty beverages and talking about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. There will be rants and raves and opinions that may not agree but are lovingly delivered. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your hosts today are Chaz Brinchley and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 148, interview with R.B. Langberg. Welcome, R.B. Hello and welcome, everybody. Thanks so much for having me on this podcast. I'm very excited to be here. Uh, We will very delighted to have you, too. I have just finished your book, The Four Profound Weaves. It's a Nebula Award finalist, Ignite finalist, Locust. Wow, it's an amazing book. I loved it. Thank you so much. I'm so thrilled about the reception that this book had. Oh, very much. It is not just that it is I loved most that your two main characters that go on adventure are 60-something. Yes, yes. For all those of us that are tired of all teenagers finding swords and going and hunting down dragons, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, this I'm I'm so happy because I, you know, there's not enough, I feel, uh, books that center older protagonists, even middle-aged and up protagonists are, are difficult to find. And so I I am so happy that I had the opportunity to write this book and, and that this particular access resonated with so many people. Oh, entirely. It was basically when I was reading it, I wanted to call Chaz up at one in the morning and said, according to this book, you and I need to go off, run off and have an adventure, friend. You should. (laughs) (laughs) Well, exactly. Because why should kids have all the fun? And secondly, I, I loved that they are both gender fluid characters and that they both had different assumptions that one of them came from the different, you create such an interesting world Mm -hmm. and that anybody can assume what they see about somebody when they see on the outside, but your book makes it clear that you need to not assume things and ask deeper and look more. And I think that is a valuable lesson right now too. Yeah, thank you for bringing it up. Um, I really enjoyed writing kind of um, a book that centered two older trans people. I think that a lot of times there is an unspoken assumption in the wider world, maybe amongst us gender people, that transness is something new. And it was really important to, for me to talk about transness as not being new and not being solely the domain of younger people. And so um, when I think about those characters, these are these are both characters that transition at some point in their lives and uh, their societies treat them completely differently. One is very transaffirming and has also a lot of openness to gender expression in general. Uh, and the other is very binarist, very restrictive. And so the trajectories that they have as a result of the societies that, that nurture them or not nurture them um, are very different. And so um I really like how people reacted positively to the fact that the nameless man, Nansa Sayir, he does not recognize from the get-go that this the other character, Wizia, is also trans <laughs> because she's not conflicted about it or at least <laughs> not conflicted about it in the same way that he's conflicted about it. So I, I, I really like that you pointed that aspect out. Thank you. I also loved that, I don't know, I'm sure you meant it, that... It looked like you were saying that a lot of the idea of gender-based roles are kind of silly. And yet, 
if somebody wants to be a gender role, a different gender and embrace that role, then they totally should. You know, I, I, I don't know if gender roles are necessarily silly, uh, but I think they are not innate. Societies produce them for their own purposes. And so in each society we might find, and definitely in Ancestors Home Society, we find uh, very rigid gender roles and they, they are very different from gender roles that exist in the city uh, outside of the Hana quarter. And um, both societies, you know, the, the majority society of the city of Iyar and, and the minority society of the Hana, people who are living in their quarter, they're very attached to their idea of what gender roles are and what they need to be. Well, I, I got that from this, the first one too. Is it, do I say it right, the Sarun? Yeah, Sarun, yeah, Sarun. The Surun are seem to be mostly matriarchal mm -hmm. weavers of change and transformation, and I love that. And yet, at the same time, there was a little bit. Shouldn't you go sit with the men? Yeah. So yeah. E even that had that little bit of expectation of role. And I, like I said, I love that your characters kind of blast through both of it because they both go and have adventures, no matter what they want to do. Mm -hmm. They still need that adventure. Yes, I think that the call for. The call to adventure is something that unites a lot of my work is that I kind of didn't realize that I was doing it until I was doing it over and over. And I realized, oh, the happy ending that I perceive of my characters is that they go on more adventures. Yeah. <laughs> There's more journey to be had. I was just that's saying my, that's lovely. My version it's of happy related ending. to something that I notice happening all the time in my own work where stories end when a character just walks out, leaves, uh, abandons his supposed his or her supposed role, and chooses to do something else, it's it's a very it's a very clear thing. Looking back over my work, uh, this is so interesting. I think that we kind of and and again, I don't want to speculate about this, but I I feel that sometimes we bring into our work what we most want out of our own. No, absolutely. And right? um, <laughs> so, me, I've always had a yen to be not necessarily an immigrant, but a an expat. You know, living living far away. Mm -hmm. I mean, I did it for a long time domestically. Like I was born in Oxford, which is sort of you know the ultimate south of England, and and I lived all my adult life in Newcastle, which is the ultimate north of England. Um, and that is that is very alienating. Um, I like being a stranger in a strange land. I think. And now, of course, I'm in America. I don't know. It's 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 a part of the writer's um, psyche, perhaps. That yeah, because we address the world from our particular point in it, it helps to be dislocated from our own center or something. I don't know. It's interesting, you know, when you say this, because I've, of course, I've, I've been an immigrant many times in my life. And uh, as, as you know, I was born in Ukraine, and then I lived in Russia, and then in Israel, and then in, in the United States. And, and uh, I, uh, you know, we do view Berkeley as yeah, a separate I'm country. Sure. Um, so. yeah, I, mean, I, I had the privilege of dislocating by choice twice. And yeah, it's a, obviously it's a very different thing. <laughs> and uh, all of those experiences of migration were, were, were quite traumatic for me. Yeah. 
sometimes I remember my first book was, I'm just trying to formulate what I'm trying to say. I remember my first book, which was a book of poetry that was shortlisted mm -hmm. for the Crawford Award, weirdly enough. Yeah, I was going to say, I didn't know they reviewed poetry at all. It, and somebody reviewed it very kindly <laughs> for Publishers Weekly, uh, which again is really unusual. And, yeah. and well, I didn't know either until they reviewed it. And they complained. I mean, it was a very, very positive review, but they complained that there's a lot of comings and goings. So <laughs> poetry is all about relocations. And I just wanted to say yes. You know, yes, it's not going to be about sitting in one place because I don't know how to do that. I don't want to. I don't want to think about it. I don't get it. So, <laughs> I guess there's a lot of comings and goings in my works. <laughs> well, I liked it for being. We have we've talked about the hero's journey, and we recently interviewed somebody talking about the heroine's journey, and it's kind of created a different sort of journey <laughs> because there's both the reaching into the past and reaching into the future and fighting well it was definitely a fighting the patriarchy thing with ir mm -hmm. is it ir do i pronounce it iyar yeah, er yeah er er which was strongly patriarchal authoritarian kind of a chechen warlord feeling bad guy in the collector and so <laughs> i you created it and i thought you captured something really interesting is for me what i got most out of him was his utter unshrinking arrogance that only I understand that all of this is beautiful and ephemeral and my, I must collect it because that will matter to history and all of your change is ephemeral and I will grind it into the dust and only I will remain. And that was, I, I see that kind of all around the planet right now. And that's, yeah. I like what you did with that as the third, what happens when you deny change. Thank you so much for, for talking about this. I think that when, when I thought about the collector, in a way, the collector is one of the most fascinating figures I got to write. And um, I hope it didn't come through as too simplistic because I was also thinking about kind of the collecting impulse or the colonial, you know, the the, the imperialist and colonialist collecting impulse where um, you, 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 you preserve or the, the hegemony, the, the person in power, the hegemony, uh, quote unquote, preserves the works of art away from people who produce them. Yes. And the people who produce them are, are erased in this process of removing the works of art from their, from their context, removing it from their communities, transporting it to somewhere else. It's in a clause, it's a literal box. Nobody will see it, but it's going to mm. be preserved. And so I really am interested. I'm interested in kind of like the cultures of collecting and the histories of museums as um, a kind of like a imperialist and, and yep. colonialist enterprise that follows along with conquest, where the people who do the most damage, then they quote unquote preserve. Well, if you didn't, you know, if you didn't do this much damage in the first place. <laughs> you wouldn't be preserving. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I grew up in Oxford, where as an adjunct to the major natural history museum, which is very much linked to Oxford University, um, there's a, a separate collection called the Pitt Rivers. And Mr. Pitt Rivers was your classic imperial anthropologist mm -hmm. um, who traveled 
very widely across the globe and came back with all sorts of interesting artifacts. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I loved the place when I was a kid because um, it was down in a basement and you went down a spiral staircase that was wrapped around a totem pole. And, and down there, there were these all these glass cases with handwritten labels and there were genuine shrunken heads and shrunken monkey heads, fake shrunken, fake shrunken heads because they were just monkeys and, and all kinds of paraphernalia from what he'd viewed as primitive cultures. That's terrible. I mean... It, it really is. And, and, and I, I went back a decade, 15 years ago, something like that, and it's no longer in the basement. It's, it's in this whole mm-hmm. new structure, practically mm-hmm. a new wing, but everything is still there, including the shrunken heads. And it, it made me a little bit sad when I traveled to see, it's like how much they say, well, this is, you know, got moved over. I'm sorry, Chaz, your British forefather gathered a lot of things from their different colonies and stole them away. Yes, we <laughs> did. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm very aware of this. Um, there, I mean, there, all my life there has been um, agitation about the Elgin Marbles. Do you know yes. about the Elgin oh, Marbles? Yes, yes. Yeah, good. Because, yeah, I mean, it's, it was the first time I encountered this notion that actually these things that were not British in any sense, shape or form um, should probably not be in British museums, but back with the people who created them. And yeah, I mean, the campaign has literally been going on all my life and there is no sign yet of the British Museum giving it back or giving anything back as far as I'm aware. Right, because once once you give one thing back, you create precedence. That's kind of like the horror of, of the collector for me is that it, it satisfies one person. Does that make sense? Like in the case of the collector, that he's amassed all this, all this art, and um, he can even tell you that he's doing it because that's the right thing to do. That's the morally right thing to do, to separate this art from the community of creators, where it can be destroyed, where the creators maybe will not understand its value again, according to the collector, obviously. And the fear of change is, 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 of course, the fear of what happens if that power and control slips, right? If that, um, if that treasure is no longer there. And kind of it was really interesting for me to view it from the viewpoint of the creators who are coming from very different communities. And one of them is not a creator at all because the nameless man is a trader. And uh, I think there were some reviews of my work that kind of emphasized how I, uh, I have the figure of the trader as one of the <laughs> uh, major kind of trope, tropes or images that I use in Birdverse. And um, the trading communities don't always, at least in, in, in medieval, ancient and early modern world, do not always neatly align with the power, power structures of the ruling mm-hmm. class. There is some overlap, but it doesn't always work that way. And so I wanted to, you know, I think it was Terry Pratchett who wrote, and not just Terry Pratchett, but there was this, this notion that the, the, the art belongs to the maker that kind of travels around not just fantasy works, but kind of kind of um, tra- travels around or the way that we think about 
ownership of art mm-hmm. and custodianship of art and and st- stealing or appropriating art mm-hmm. and we kind of wonder who owns art <laughs> so is it the person who pays is it the person who forcibly removes it is it is is it is it the maker there was another factor in this that that struck me very strongly of when you just talk to him sure you could kind of see that he was that little bit of a smiling monster narcissist idea <laughs> but the characters that were gathered around him were also fascinating to me. For instance, you have a man that killed his own child to make a thing, you know, and that that was something that you used in other things too, that even, even the change oriented, the great weaver, that she was pretty icky. It's like, you've killed your family members. And, and that, that, that single-minded idea, having the same single-minded, you know, path to power, path of this, can be across different kinds of societies too. And I thought that was interesting. Thank you so much for this. Those are those are all really deep questions, issues. I think that um, we prize single-mindedness sometimes as a way to achieve goals. And uh, it's definitely single-minded focus has been portrayed as kind of a pathway to mastery where everything is subjugated into the drive to achieve perfection in your craft or in your art or in warfare or whatever it is that you're focused on. Everything else is subjugated to the goal. And I wanted to rattle that. (laughs) I think I managed to rattle that better with some people than with others, because obviously the ruler over here, the collector, he will never, (laughs) never until his very last moment swerve from the path because he knows he's right and uh, and the other people are just not worth listening to on the other hand um ben Sirat, the 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 aunt the kind of the the mentor slash horror figure she's maybe going to but we don't know at the very least her story is a bit more open-ended and maybe she's going to learn something and maybe she will not. Because for her, even though she was entirely single-minded in her pursuit, she did not actually accomplish her goal. Her goal was to leave a great uh, work, Carpet of Death, uh, which would be her masterpiece and complete her trajectory. And uh, she she never did. Uh, she never did. And instead, Luizia, who was, you know, much... Wizia is, is a wonderful craftswoman, but she's not on the same, maybe on the same level of mastery, maybe as her aunt. Uh, but she's the one who weaves the great weave of death. And, and again, I'm spoiling, so I don't know. You need to kind of like, maybe. No, no. I I loved the idea of that. So there was a great character that, let's face it, morally ambiguous <laughs> aunt. <laughs> Just call her the more. Can we call her the morally ambiguous aunt? The morally ambiguous aunt seems to have also seen the world in terms of herself and what she needed to do to create, as opposed to her niece that I think managed it because she embraced love and understanding. And I thought that was in its own way even more profound because the the people like the torturer and the the aunt who, well, frankly, kill people, <laughs> versus the, yes, these people are dead, but I want to hear them and I want to listen to them. And and in a weird sort of way, I got a little teary thinking about how many biographers are going to look back on, you know, what's going on now in the world and 
capture these pictures of people that can't tell their own stories, so they will tell it for them. And I thought that was made her a better artist than her aunt, who was maybe just a little bit too much of a narcissist. I, I think that's, also. thank you. Uh, that was definitely my intent. I think with Wizia, when she sits down um, and listens to the voices of, of the dead, um, she's not giving them voice. She is there to witness their voices. And um, that is such a profound act that I think we don't, we don't really kind of emphasize that enough, in my humble opinion, is that the voices of, of the past can be heard. It just requires a lot of work to get there. And the voices of the present can be heard. And so for her, she goes through this whole journey just to get to that moment where she is in the room. She is in this cavern and she has limited mobility. She cannot really leave. She's sitting with her back to the door. And only then, then at that point when she's already, you know, have gone through so much and suffered so much and is completely alone with the voices, can she really give them their due? And that's the moment. Well, she basically is sitting Shiva for the, for the, yes. for the dead. And that was so profoundly beautiful. Thank you. That's one of my favorite things that I've ever written. And I, 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 every time I'm so I'm so touched when people tell me that the scene moved them, um, because it means so much to me. So thank you. <laughs> um, do you find that your themes emerge as you write the stories, or do you go in there knowing that this is what you're going to be writing about? Um, so this is interesting because I. I'm a very visual, a visual person in that I walk around and I envision the pivotal scenes from my, my stories, my books. Mm -hmm. And I sometimes drive around or walk around them. I have to be in motion for this to happen. And I kind of like the scenes unfold and they're completely wordless and I am witness them. And then they grab me and then I kind of tell myself, okay, this, this, I need to put it down because this came to me. I'm now it's custodian. And so I, I need to, <laughs> I need to do it justice, but I don't know everything. So I know the pivotal emotional moments. I usually know them before I sit down to write. And um, I know how these emotional moments feel to me, how they felt when I imagined them, how they unfolded. And um I lead the, the story. I need to figure out well, in my writing process how, how the story leads and travels from one scene to another. Um, so I think that uh, with The Four Profound Weaves, um, that story was very long in the telling because I, I first wrote a poem, then I wrote a short story, a novel, novelette that was shortlisted for the Nebula. And mm -hmm. then only then... Uh, the story progressed to the point where the story of, of, of the nameless man could be told. Um, and at that point, I kind of already knew bits and pieces of it. And I saw, I think the scene that I saw was almost from the very end when, when Bird, again, I'm spoiling, but the scene mm -hmm. with Bird from the very, very end. Um, I saw it in my mind and I kind of like tried to backtrack and figure out, okay, what's what's happened before it, before it, and then this scene where Wizia is listening to the dead 
I saw it and then I kind of, okay, I'm writing this down. (laughs) (laughs) I cannot wait a moment longer. I'm just going to write it down. Well, and I love that it talked about, I had to go read it. I read the first two chapters more than once because I got near the end and I'm like, I kind of want to see how that opened one more time that, (laughs) yes, his change was only a month prior. Yes. So that, as opposed to somebody who had lived most of their life since their early teen years when got a feeling and it changed. And so... For him, names were still very powerful and mattered. And that's why you went through Nameless Man. Mm -hmm. And I had to understand that, ah, it was the Nameless Man. And then I I attached the word to it because to not have a name, to not know what you are yet was also fascinating. Well, for him, the question of naming was so deep and so troubling because he came from a culture that rejected him. Well, he felt rejected by that culture, by his own culture and by his own kind of environment that, that wouldn't accept him as a trans man and wouldn't accept him as a man and would only accept him if he stayed closeted. And this manifested in both in his, his partner, uh, who, was, uh, who was adamant that he should wait <laughs> to transition and uh, who could not could not really wrap her mind around his, his transition, but also because uh, Nansaseiro or the nameless man, he was a part of this community of women who were rebels and they were not really understanding, well, we are, we're doing all those manly things. We are, we are doing this underground artifice where we're, we're still women. Like, what's your problem? They couldn't understand and affirm him. And uh, because of that, when he transitioned, he, when he physically transitioned, he uh, had help of the Surin people who are not his people, who are like friends and he used to trade with them, but they're not his people and so then came this thought of, okay, I need a name. I, I, I'm really conflicted about taking a Hana name because my people rejected me. I feel rejected by them. And uh, maybe this person will give me a name. Maybe that person will give me a name. And nobody gives him a name. And so he cobbles together, um, you know, this name, this way name that he uses through most of the book, Nansa Sayer, which is um, com- composite of two languages. One is his, his own native language, uh, Hana, which which is the Nen part, which means sun, and then Sasair, which is comes from the Surin language, which means of the sandbirds, son of sandbirds. And um, he travels and uses this name for a very long time, and we get to know him with this name. But eventually, um, again, I'm spoiling, he will get a name. It kind of, even though he doesn't really return to his people, he turns away, even when he can be accepted, he has other things to do he gets a Hana name. And I think that that reflects my own thoughts about the complexity of trans identity for people who are multi, multinational, multicultural, multilingual, who move between different, um, different communities and um, often, you know, often had conversation that they had early on. Um, now I think things have shifted, but maybe 10, nine, eight years ago, when we were editing, when Shweta and I were editing Stone Telling Magazine, and we were talking to a whole bunch of bilingual, multilingual writers, especially writers from the Global South, but also Eastern European writers and others who just felt that there is no space for our identities in our, in, in our first languages. And again, things have shifted. So things, things are different now. Sure. But, um, but we kind of like struggled with this multilingual aspect 
of describing our, ourselves, our identities, um, the language that we might use. So um, that's kind of where those thoughts and those ideas came from. Although, of course, um, Nansa Sayer is then going through his own thing. You know? <laughs> um, but yeah. that's the thing I wanted to talk to you about. I mean, I think English is your third, maybe fourth language, something like that. Something like that. Um, yeah, I don't know. Why, why did you choose? I mean, how did you choose to write English? in English? So through most of my early life, I was completely stumped as to what language to write in. And uh, I, I wrote in Russian, I wrote in Hebrew, mm -hmm. I wrote in other languages. I remember I wrote the whole thing in Czech. I don't know even what. <laughs> uh, it was about, it was a fantasy about cats. It was awesome. I, I am. Oh, I that know sounds where. magnificent. <laughs> it was, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was, uh, it was kind of a Chapek inspired Inspired by Chapek's uh, tale about the, the little tail, the little dog and the little cat, um, but I I don't I don't I can't do this right now because my check is now so rusty that I, I could not do it anymore. But um, uh, but I, I did it once upon a time. But I couldn't I couldn't choose I couldn't choose what language to write in. I felt that I was voiceless because I didn't have an obvious an obvious language to write in. And I felt and I expressed that my all of my languages were insufficient for what I wanted to do, uh, which which is which is kind of like, like a multilingual person's feels. It doesn't reflect reality necessarily; it just reflects feelings. And well, I I actually wanted to express my admiration for how vividly you paint in this your fourth language because I I now I'm going to be obliged to go buy your poetry books as well because. They're really, you, you play with words beautifully Thank and you, you describe things beautifully. And I, I dug it a lot. So I think that it's, it's one of those I, people either see pictures or I'm more of an action oriented and yours are very vivid. And so I'm a little jealous. It's beautiful. Well, thank you so much. I have to say that English kind of took over and uh, because I've been writing in this language for so long and kind of I, 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 I am I am a bit frustrated how much English has, has taken over. Uh, and it wasn't like this when I just started writing because obviously I was, I was very conflicted about my English. I was convinced that it's not great. And I was just so complete. And, and the moment I, and I used to delete, I used to destroy everything I wrote uh -huh. up until 2008 <laughs> so I, I I destroyed everything and then in 2008 people um, were kind to me <laughs> and my friend Catherine hi Catherine if you're listening to this this is about you um, my friend Catherine uh, uh, read some of my earliest stories one story and um she's a she's a literary scholar and i was <laughs> i was sure that she's gonna tell me this is terrible never write again and she cried <laughs> and said that it was good and uh i uh, i kept writing and i sent out a poem and i sold it i sent out another i sold it i sold a story the moment i stopped destroying my work i started selling I think there's a coincidence there. <laughs> might be loose, but you know, maybe. <laughs> but I, I, I was still so conflicted. You know, I was so conflicted because I felt I, I couldn't understand what was going on and what I was doing. And but now, now I'm not conflicted anymore. And it only took me 14 years, 12 years. <laughs> That's a man, nothing. What are you? A little bit. <laughs> so, what are you working on right now? 
Okay, so I just turned in, uh, copy edits and proofs to two books that are coming out this year. One is my poetry memoir, which is my first non-science fiction fantasy, non-speculative work. And uh, this book is called Everything Thaws, A Poetic Cycle. And it's basically uh, about growing up between Ukraine and Russia. I lived in Varkuta, which is a site of a gulag, a former gulag uh, in circumpolar Russia for a part of my childhood. And I write about basically Soviet Jews and diaspora and migration and queerness and multi-generational trauma. You do it in verse. In verse, yes, in verse. <laughs> it's a series of 32, I think, yeah. poems. I mean, yeah. I, kn I know yeah. there are um, there are <laughs> memoirs, autobiographies in verse, um, but they're precious few and far between. This sounds wonderful. Thank you, Chaz. Well, I hope that it's going to find its readers. I started thinking, well, is this even like relevant anymore now because of the war? And I feel everything has changed. But I think, I think it is relevant and maybe even more okay. relevant now. I was going to so, say. Yeah, absolutely more relevant, surely. So, yeah, I would say my favorite is it Slava Ukraina? Slava Ukraina, yeah, Slava Ukraina. There you go. And so, the second book that is coming out this year is called The Unbalancing. And it's a Birdverse novel. It's the first novel that's going to be in print from Birdverse. And um, the first novel in print for me, period. And uh, it is a short novel. And it is a, basically about queer Atlantis. It's, it's queer bird versus Atlantis in which <laughs> a group of magic keepers, they're all queer and non-binary. Uh, they're trying to save their islands from an environmental and magical disaster. And yeah, they fall in love and save the cat. <laughs> so I think. I, I what think what, what other life goals could you have, honestly? <laughs> I mean, those are the best life goals. Seriously, uh, there's a lot of non-binary world building. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of kind of big questions about uh, about community and failure, personal and collective responsibility. It's a book that I wrote after one of my closest friends, Corey, passed away tragically in 2020, mm. and uh, it has everything they loved so uh so they loved one of the characters uh, that i wrote and they wanted more non-binary uh, representation and there's multiple wonderful representation of non-binary characters there's a whole bunch of non-binary world building one of the main characters is is autistic is neurodivergent so there's that uh, it's very very clear um, and it's despite having a romance, I, I think it's still kind of hard hitting. So I'm really looking forward to how this book will be received. It's going to come out in fall 2022, September 2022. And it's already available for pre-order on Tachyon and also Raven Bookstore. Is What's doing, it called? It's called The Unbalancing. And uh, I will I will send you some links. So if people want a copy that is signed and uh, has a bird on it, I draw a bird. <laughs> you can order it from the Raven, I, and I'll draw you a bird. Oh, on it. I think they will. Um, so I'm working on a novel, and I also have a novella in revisions that I hope to finish very soon. The novella that I wrote is about two people who sit down to arrange an assassination. Excellent. But they speak different languages and they're both from different cultures. They're migrants. 
and they start talking about languages and trauma and uh, um, the story just unravels from there. Uh, and it's about and it's about the power, the healing power of active listening, I think, in the end. But also assassination. I mean, no, there's that. Yeah. Healing, you know, listening and assassination. Well, we will put links to all the interesting things we mentioned on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. Arby, thank you so much. This is fabulous to have you here today. And I loved your book. Everyone needs to go right out and buy it right now, The Four Profound Weaves. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for your questions and for having me here. It's been lovely and I hope the listeners enjoy it. And you can find me on social media. I'm mostly hanging out on Twitter, though I want uh, maybe to do it less, but I'm not managing. <laughs> <laughs> it's RB underscore. Well, we will put all of your social media links right on the website so anybody can admire you from afar. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineers and backup web spiders are David Welsh and John Schmidt. Our intro music is Pretty Maid Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, both by Michael Ingberg. Our podcast sponsor is Jackal Designs and Arm Street. And hey, thanks for listening.